The following sermon was preached at Redeeming Grace Fellowship. For more information about RGF, please visit our website at www.rgf.church. Please feel free to make copies of this sermon or distribute to friends and family. But please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way. Please turn in your Bibles this morning to the book of Colossians chapter 1. Today we are returning to our study in Paul's great epistle to the Colossians, and we will be looking at verses 9 through 14. But let's begin reading in verse 1 and continue reading through to verse 15. Hear now the word of God. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel, which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and growing, as it also does among you, since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. And so... From the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. May you be strengthened with all power, according to his glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word to us this morning. We thank you, as we, as we just heard, that we have access to your word this morning. We thank you for the men, the faithful men you raised up through the centuries to give us that word. And many paid for that, with their own lives, in martyrdom, for something we take for granted today. May we not take it for granted. May we not neglect. To whom much is given, much is required. And you have given us so much in giving us your word. And now we gather this morning to worship you in the hearing of your word. Enable me to proclaim it, to proclaim it uh, accurately, truthfully, boldly, to proclaim it in love. 
May your word go forth this morning and accomplish the eternal purposes for which you have sent it. Give us ears to hear and eyes to see what your Holy Spirit is saying to your church through your word today. And may we be doers of your word, not hearers only deceiving our own selves. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. When we began our look at Colossians back in the spring, we said that the Apostle Paul was writing to these Colossian Christians primarily because they had come into contact with some dangerous false teaching. New teachers, a visiting group of teachers perhaps, had come to this young congregation and they had said essentially to them, well, what, what, what Epaphras had taught you at first, that's good, but what we got is better. We'll give you a deeper realization, a deeper spiritual experience. We'll give you a fullness of faith which you've never known before. We'll give you a deeper knowledge of God. We'll give you a greater experience of his power. If you'll only follow us in these rituals and, and, and speculative beliefs which we are going to teach you, which Epaphras never did tell you about. That's essentially what they were saying. And as we saw when we began our study in verses 1 and 2, that even in his greeting, the Apostle Paul begins to undercut the teaching of these false prophets. Even in his greeting, he expresses the fact that these Christians have received the fullness of the gifts of God in the Spirit, that they are equipped by God, that they have heard the faith once delivered. And then in verses 3 through 8, uh, we saw him give a testimony to just how faithful Epaphras had been. Paul says, again, essentially that he was a faithful minister. He didn't tell you only part of the story. He gave you the whole story. Yes, you'll grow. Yes, you'll increase in faith. But it's not because he hasn't told you everything. It's because you're going to grow in what he has already told you. You're going to grow in the very same gospel that he has already preached to you. Not a different gospel, Paul says, not a supplement to that gospel, but in that very same gospel. And the Apostle Paul, in that passage, in verses 3 through 8, he actually commends the Colossian believers, as we just read, and he says, look, God is already at work in you. I can see the graces of faith and love and hope already growing in you. In fact, when Epaphras came to visit me here in prison, he told me about the faith. And the hope and the love which was growing in your church there. And that's proof that God is at work. Because those things don't come naturally. That was Paul's message to him, in the, to the Colossian church in those verses. Now, you know, some may think it's, it's natural to believe, natural to love, natural to hope. Paul knew better. Paul knew that you really can't do those things the way God intended them to be done unless the Holy Spirit is at work in your life. And Paul says, I've heard of what is happening in your lives. And that is evidence that God is at work in you. And again, all of that in verses 3 through 8 was meant to undercut the false teaching that they were hearing. And now this morning, in verses 9 through 14... Paul gives us his prayer for the Colossians in response to the report from Epaphras. 
Throughout Paul's writings, as you know, we are often given a glimpse of his prayer life. Sometimes he actually gives us the prayer that he's been praying for a particular group of Christians. Other times he gives a request about what he wants others to pray for him. Here he gives an outline, I guess we can call it a summation, of his prayer for the Colossians. And in it, he shows us what genuine spiritual growth looks like as opposed to the false idea of spiritual growth that the false teachers in the Colossian church were promoting. It's interesting. Every parent has or has had a growth chart somewhere in their home, on a wall, or on a closet door where you measure your children's height every few months, right? Who's done that? Anybody? Okay, good. Oh, I see that. Good. I'd be embarrassed if nobody raised there, if I was the only one who had done that, but that's not the case. And we did that when our children were small. In fact, for a time, we used the door frame outside my office door at home, and you could see the pencil marks going up the door frame as our children continued to grow. And of course, when, they, when, when, when children see how much they've grown, there's usually a great deal of excitement. Uh, sometimes, though, that excitement can turn to disappointment. I remember years ago taking the family to a place called Country Fair on Route 112 in Medford. Anybody ever go to Country Fair? Oh, good. So one person knows what I'm talking about. Uh, it's, a, it, 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 it's, it's a nice family place. There, there, there's, there's miniature golf. There's games of all kinds. There's rides, including bumper cars and, and a speedway where you actually drive, you know, a little car around a track. Well, at that time, my son Andrew, I remember the day we went. It wasn't just our family. My mother, in fact, had wanted to take all of us there. As a gift. So it was my family, my brother John's family, his kids, my brother Joe, my sister Jen, and her husband Robin. We were all there, and we were all excited about getting in these cars and riding around the track. And unfortunately, my son Andrew discovered that he didn't quite reach the bottom of the sign that gave the height requirement for driving the miniature cars. You remember that, Ro? He, he was very disappointed, I, to say the least, not to mention angry and annoyed, and he kind of sulked the rest of the day. Now, I think that as a parent, it always brings great joy when your children grow old enough to learn what pleases you and actually do it. And that usually happens when they're small. Oh, Daddy, I helped Mommy fold the laundry today, right? And they're all proud, and that's good. Oh, Mommy, I knew you didn't feel well, so I made you this card. Uh, and you know they're growing because they want to do things that please you. Well, have you ever thought about what spiritual growth looks like or how you can measure it? Can you measure spiritual growth by how often you go to church or by how many ministries you're involved in or by how much you give? Sometimes those things may reflect spiritual growth, but, but they certainly are not at the heart of it, at the heart of spiritual growth is learning how God wants us to live so that as his children, we can please him by living that way and in doing so, bring glory and honor to him. And again, in his prayer for these young Colossian believers, Paul shows what spiritual growth looks like. And that's how we're going to approach this passage this morning. I'm approaching this prayer as a picture of spiritual growth. But don't miss the fact that it is a prayer. It shows us how Paul prayed for these young believers 
most of whom he did not know personally. And along with Paul's other recorded prayers, and we see prayers like this in Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 1, Ephesians chapter 3. We see a prayer like this in Philippians chapter 1, 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. Along with Paul's other recorded prayers, we can learn how to pray for our families. We can learn how to pray for our friends, for ourselves, uh, for one another in the local church. Paul's prayers provide a, 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 just a tremendous model uh, for our own prayers for one another. And when Paul says here that he uh, and Timothy have not ceased to pray for the Colossians, he means that they had often and regularly remembered them in their prayers. And I would encourage you, again, to use this prayer as a guide for your prayers. Now, Paul's prayer here actually begins in verses 3 through 8, where he thanked God for their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and for their love for all the saints and the hope laid up for them in heaven. Now, he tells them here, he tells them his request that they would be filled with the knowledge of God's will so that they will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, pleasing him in every way. And then he lists four things that pleases the Lord. Bearing fruit in every good work, increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with God's power so that they can uh, steadfastly and patiently endure trials, and joyfully giving thanks to the Father for his great salvation. And again, I'm going to treat this prayer from the perspective of what spiritual growth looks like. And the first point that I would like to make this morning is this. Spiritual growth means Growing to know how God wants us to live. I mean, there are some professing Christians, and they've been professing Christians for years, for decades even. Attendees of a church for decades. And for whatever reason, through neglect of the word, whatever the the, the reason might be, they still don't really know how God wants them to live. And we see this in Colossians 1, verse 9. And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. So first of all, understand that Paul's prayer prayer here is that the Colossians would be filled with the knowledge of God's will. And that does not mean... Please understand this. That does not mean that he wants them to know whether they should take a different job offer or marry a particular person or things like that. That's not the knowledge of God's will that Paul is talking about here. Rather, he's asking that they might know God's, his his moral will as revealed in his word. His will pertaining to how to live the Christian life in a way that pleases him and brings him glory. Being filled with this knowledge is a prayer that they would be controlled. That's what it means in Scripture, to be filled. To be filled with the Spirit rather than be drunk with wine, as Paul makes that contrast in in Ephesians uh, chapter 5, right? Be filled with the Spirit. Be not drunk, right? Uh, be uh, Be ye not filled with wine to excess, but be ye filled by the Spirit, right, with the Spirit, 
when you're drunk with wine, you are controlled by wine, right? So the parallel there to be filled with the Spirit would be to be controlled by the Spirit. Being filled with this knowledge is a prayer that they would be controlled by this knowledge so that it would govern every thought, every word, every deed, every attitude, every motive. And since God's moral will is a reflection of his holy character, Paul's prayer is that these new believers would grow to know God himself as he has revealed himself in the word of God. And Paul is being clever here. He really is. Taking the word knowledge that the false teachers were throwing around and now using it and employing it against them. Even in his prayer for the Colossians here. He's refuting the false teacher's deceit, and he's shutting down the, the, the arrogant teachings and, and, and the, the, the pompous boastings that they can provide some deeper knowledge and experience that the Colossians need but cannot gain through the teaching of the gospel alone. They're basically saying, these false teachers are basically saying, you can attain this deeper spiritual knowledge that only we can provide. You can't get it from Epaphras. You can't get it from the writings of the apostles. We can give it to you. And so what does Paul say here? Well, let me tell you something, Colossian Christians. You already have access to the fullness of truth and the grace of God in the Lord Jesus. And so this is my prayer for you, that you would continue to be filled with the truthfulness, with the fullness which comes from Christ, a knowledge, if you will, that is in accordance with the word of God, a practical knowledge that impacts your daily living, Colossians. That's the kind of knowledge I want you to grow in, Paul says. Not these mystical techniques and unbiblical rituals that they're peddling upon you. You don't need that. My prayer is deeper, true knowledge in the Lord Jesus Christ. Don't be fooled, Paul is telling by these false teachers and their philosophies or their peculiar spiritual mystical techniques because all the spiritual fullness of God has been given to you. That's what Paul, not in all those words that I just used, but that's what he is telling them in his prayer for them. It's been given to you in Christ. It's been given to you as you've come to scriptural gospel faith in the Lord Jesus. All the fullness you need, Paul says, and all that God supplies is to be found in Jesus Christ. That is part of Paul's prayer for them. And the idea of fullness here is very important. The false teachers who had infiltrated the Colossian church were likely emphasizing how their teachings would bring them fullness of knowledge. And to counter this claim, Paul emphasizes the theme of fullness by repeatedly using the words all, or every, or fully, in one case. All spiritual wisdom and understanding, in verse 9. Fully pleasing to him, in verse 10. Bearing fruit in every good work, again, verse 10. Strengthened with all power, Colossians 1.11. And for all endurance and patience, again, verse 11. Over and over and over again, Paul is emphasizing this idea of fullness. Paul wants the Colossians and us to know that every spiritual need that we have is to be found fully in Christ. So why go elsewhere? Amen? Why go elsewhere? 
Now, Paul describes this true knowledge of God's will with two words, in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. A knowledge comprised of wisdom and understanding. First of all, the knowledge of how God wants us to live requires or includes spiritual wisdom. Spiritual wisdom. And the word spiritual there in verse 9 is given special emphasis by its position in the sentence, and it applies both to the word wisdom and understanding. It's spiritual wisdom and spiritual understanding. Spiritual wisdom and spiritual understanding come from God's spirit and stand in contrast to the worldly wisdom of the false teachers. Now, wisdom is particularly an Old Testament concept emphasized often in the book of Proverbs. And uh, the words for both wisdom and understanding, understanding often occur together, as in Proverbs 9, verse 10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding, right? Wisdom, knowledge, understanding. Uh, The main idea behind the Hebrew concept of wisdom is skill. Skill. For example, the men who were able to construct the tabernacle, according to God's plan as revealed to Moses, are called wise. Meaning skillful. In Exodus 31, verse 3, Exodus 31, verse 6, Exodus 36, verses 1 and 2. Just as a skilled carpenter can take a piece of rough wood and shape it according to a plan into a beautiful and useful piece of furniture, so too the wise person is able to take the rough elements of life and shape them according to God's plan into something beautiful and useful to him. Spiritual wisdom requires learning about God and how he wants us to live so that our lives will not be ruined by sin, but rather will become a finely crafted product that will cause others to be attracted to the maker who displays his glory in us. Amen? Secondly, the knowledge of how God wants us to live requires and involves spiritual understanding. And again, wisdom and understanding are somewhat synonymous, but there are subtle nuances of difference. Wisdom, again, refers to knowing how God's word commands us to live, whereas understanding refers to insight, perception, the ability to discern between things. Understanding enables us to put the pieces of wisdom together in specific situations. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 7, for example, After using the analogies of the soldier and the athlete and the farmer, Paul tells Timothy, think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. In other words, the Lord would enable Timothy to grasp the truths of these analogies and put them together so as to gain insight into how he should apply these truths in conducting his ministry. Early in the 20th century, Bishop H.C.G. Moore warned against what he called, quote, an untheological devotion. An untheological devotion. And by that he meant a sentimental religion, 
which thought that it could be healthy on a minimum of reasoned doctrine. But, he said, quote, such people are easily swayed by the current fashions of thought or by attractive personalities. And we see that throughout the church world today. Do we not? A devotion to, a so-called devotion to God, a devotion to Christ, based on a minimum, if that, of, of theology, biblical truth, theology, and doctrine, right? More recently, D.A. Carson noted that in the, worst, in the Western church, quote, the knowledge of God declines while our fascination with techniques and fads increases. And again, we're seeing that today. We're seeing the knowledge of God declining, and we see a fascination with techniques and fads. And he's right. I mean, there's no shortage of pastors' conferences or books that promise to tell us how to have a successful, in other words, large church. Right? They're everywhere. But these techniques and fads come more from the world than from God's word. Spiritual understanding involves the ability that God gives to be able to bring together the principles of his word so that we can stand against the ungodly trends of our times. How do you become filled or controlled by the knowledge of God's will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding? This might be a helpful illustration. It comes from a pastor who was once in the Coast Guard. And he explained that when they were navigating in the fog, they used two things to keep from running into something. First, they used their radar, of course, which would show an object as a little blip on the screen. They couldn't see it out the window because of the dense fog, but the radar said, look out, something's out there. But in addition to the radar, they would send a man to stand on the bow. Sometimes it was so foggy that they could barely see him standing there. But he would wear a headset so that he could talk with the bridge. And sometimes he could see something from his vantage point that those on the bridge couldn't see. Well, in the same way, there are two things that will help us grow in spiritual wisdom and understanding. So that our life doesn't run aground in the moral and spiritual fog of this world. The first, of course, is to prayerfully read and meditate upon the word of God. No surprise there. And in light of what we heard this morning from Pastor Caleb about William Tyndale and the cost involved in, 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 in the sacrifices involved in bringing us the word of God, one of the greatest tragedies of our time is the neglect of the word of God. Most of us have shelves filled with Bibles. And yet we neglect the word of God. Those shelves filled with Bibles will stand as an indictment against us on that day of judgment. Charles Spurgeon once said to his congregation, there is enough dust on some of your Bibles to write damnation with your finger. (laughs) That's some quote, isn't it? Imagine sitting there that day and hearing that. Um, But it's true. It's true. By reading the Bible over and over and thinking about what it says and asking God for understanding, we can see the blips of danger on the screen and avoid smashing into them. God's word exposes the dangerous winds of doctrine that are are blowing in our times. 
It also reveals the way that Satan has tempted people in the past and the consequences when they have yielded to his evil schemes. Uh, All of us men, especially, to use one example, should burn into our minds the portrait of the foolish man in Proverbs 7, whose first mistake was to go near the home of the loose woman. Then he succumbed to her enticement. Proverbs 7.23 says, as a bird hastens to the snare. He succumbed as a bird hastens to the snare, so he does not know that it will cost him his life. There's wisdom and understanding there, amen? There's wisdom and understanding there, and that's just one example of how God's word imparts spiritual wisdom and understanding to us. The second way we are helped is, and this is something, that you know, we really want to encourage, and it, in in most congregations, it's it's sorely neglected. But the second way we are helped is, is by reading church history and Christian biographies. God's word is like the radar, but reading church history is like the guy on the bow. You know, we we don't depend on him alone, but sometimes he can help us interpret what we're seeing on the radar screen or point to something that we missed. And by reading what God's people have faced down through the centuries and how they, they either succeeded or failed, we gain insight into our times. For example, I mean, I literally could have picked from thousands of examples but we'll just for example in his book the puritans their origins and successors martin lloyd jones has a chapter on sandemanianism i don't even know if i'm pronouncing that right now most of us will never have heard that term unless we have read that chapter in that book but if we have read that chapter in that book we will have instantly realized that this error from a man named Robert Sandeman in the early 1700s, is exactly the same error that John MacArthur combats in his book, The Gospel According to Jesus. And it's interesting, I just saw a copy of that book last night. We were at the conference, and there was a book table, and that book was uh, for sale. I don't know how many of you have ever read The Gospel According to Jesus. It's a a wonderful book to combat the... the, um, Well, the false idea, uh, the error that saving faith involves only bare assent, mental, intellectual assent to the work of Christ, not repentance or obedience to the lordship of Christ. That's a common teaching in in, in the church today. Uh, But it's nothing new. It was dealt with back in the 1700s. And while we're on the subject of... uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones, we might as well read Ian Murray's two-volume biography of Dr. Lloyd-Jones. And when we do, we will learn how he insightfully applied God's word to the spiritual battles in his day. And that will certainly help us navigate the foggy waters of our day. And again, we can literally name hundreds of of, of, uh, great Christians of the past, and, and glean and gain wisdom and insight from their successes and failures. And again, these are just two examples of the nearly limitless number of resources that are available to us so that we can grow in spiritual wisdom and understanding.
And as we grow in the knowledge of how God wants us to live, the result is that we will walk worthy of the Lord, pleasing him in every way. And that leads to my second point this morning concerning what spiritual growth looks like. Namely, spiritual growth means walking in a manner worthy of the Lord as we seek to please him in all things. The knowledge of God's will leads to a walk that is worthy of the Lord. The result of all biblical knowledge should be godly conduct. Amen? Godly character and conduct. And if that's not the result, then all we have is knowledge that puffs us up in pride. We could memorize the entire Bible. We can have a a, a, a doctor of theology from the, the, the greatest seminary. But if it does not lead to godly character and conduct, if it does not lead to a life pleasing to the Lord, it's just knowledge that puffs us up. And please understand this. The primary motive for godly conduct is not that we can live a happier and better life, although that is often the case. You know, the the obedient Christian is the joyful Christian. Trust and obey, right? For there's no other way to be what happy, joyful in Jesus than to trust and obey. So the primary motive for godly conduct is not that we can live a happier and better life, but rather that we please and glorify the Lord. Now, before we look at the four ways Paul says that we can please the Lord, Note that this is a walk, a walk, and that implies steady progress in a deliberate direction. Steady progress in a deliberate direction. You don't get there by a dramatic spiritual experience. John Wesley, as great a man of God as he was, had it wrong, and the the holiness movement has it wrong, that some man can come and lay hands on you and you can be holy and sinless. Wouldn't that be great? If that were the case, no more struggle with sin. Someone comes, prays for us, and we have this this spiritual experience. And in this life, we sin no more. That's not the case. Um, We get there by steady, deliberate, day-by-day growth in understanding through God's word. Amen? It's the only way. And this is a walk that is worthy of the Lord. And D.A. Carson again explains, and this is very interesting when I read this. This had a more profound meaning in the first century. Where most cultures were shame-based. In America today, we don't usually think this way. There is no more shame. Come on, is there any shame? It's incredible. Even the most vile behaviors fail to produce a sense of shame anymore. But in shame-based cultures, to dishonor your father, for example, that was a really big deal. That was shameful, and it brought shame. Okay? So, to walk worthy of the Lord in a manner that honors him and does not bring him shame, that's a, that, that, that would have been a very big deal to the Christians of the first century. Uh, So here Paul is urging these new believers, these young believers, to live in a way that would bring honor to the Lord. 
the Lord who gave himself on the cross to rescue them from Satan's domain of darkness, which we'll see in a moment. So in every situation, we should ask, what sort of speech, what sort of conduct would honor or glorify the name of the Lord? What would please him the most? And to assist us, Paul spells out four ways that we can please the Lord. Number one, we please the Lord when we bear fruit in every good work. Fruit is what God accomplishes through us as we depend on him. As Jesus taught in John 15, verse 5, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. So fruit is the outworking of the life of Christ flowing through us as we depend upon him. And although we could go into more detail, we won't this morning. Fruit generally consists of Christ-like character, Christ-like, Christ-like conduct, and, and converts as we preach the gospel. Those things are all named as fruit uh, in the New Testament. Uh, we're saved by grace through faith, apart from works, but genuine saving faith inevitably, inevitably produces good works. Or it's not genuine saving faith, amen? We read that in Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. And while fruit does take time to be produced in us, if there is no sign of fruit, a person should question his faith. Secondly, we please the Lord when we increase in the knowledge of God. And this is um, verse 10. So as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, increasing in the knowledge of God. Now, this phrase may mean we are growing to know God better. Or it could mean that we are growing by knowing God better. Uh, Both are correct. And either way, there is the idea that we must know God himself. We must know God himself. Just as any earthly father is pleased when his children want to spend time with him so that they can know him better. In the same way, we please God when we desire to spend time with him in his word so that we can know him better and not just know about him but know him in a relationship and this knowledge of God in verse 10 it's inseparably connected with the knowledge of his will in verse 9 and with obedience to that will walking worthily pleasing him bearing fruit etc in John 14 verse 21 Jesus says he who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me And he who loves me will be loved by my father, and I will love him and will disclose myself to him. If you want to get to know Jesus better, read his word and obey him. Amen? He only reveals himself in this intimate way, in this relational way to those who obey him. Hear it again. He who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me, and he who loves me will be loved by my my father. I will love him, and I will disclose myself. I will reveal myself to him. And you can see this principle in human relationships. You don't disclose yourself to those who are not worthy of your trust. You won't share your heart with just anyone, but only with those who care enough about you to keep your trust. In the same way, when the Lord sees that we love him, 
and are trustworthy because we obey him. Of course, he knows that already. But when, uh, you know, from, from our side, from our perspective, when he sees that, he will reveal himself to us. It pleases God when we bear fruit and grow to know him better through his word. Thirdly, we please the Lord when we are strengthened with his power to be steadfast, to, to endure and be patient. Strengthened here is, is a, a present participle in the Greek. You don't need to really know that, but know this. It means that it indicates our need for a continual infusion of God's power. All power points to the fact that it is an unlimited supply. According to his glorious might. This is all in verse 11. May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. According to his glorious might is literally according to the might of his glory. According to the might of his glory. God's glory is the outward manifestation of his splendor, his, of his inherent majesty. Often in the Old Testament, it was a blinding light, a bright cloud, a, a lightning with thunder. Whenever anyone encountered God's glory, he fell on his face in awe and reverence, afraid that he would die. In the New Testament, we see God's glory in Jesus Christ. Sometimes it was veiled, but at other times, such as on the Mount of Transfiguration, when he performed miracles in the garden, or when the soldiers fell backwards, or on the cross when the sky was darkened and the earthquake, in those times, his glory was seen. God's glory in Christ is what knocked, at that time, belligerent Paul, or belligerent Saul, to the ground, blinding him and bringing him into submission to Jesus Christ. Well, Paul says here in verse 11 that we please the Lord when we are strengthened with all power according to the might of his glory. Now, I ask you, as I've asked myself, do you experience this mighty power of God in your life? Now, before you answer, keep reading. (laughs) Because if you don't, you might think, well, if I were experiencing God's mighty power, I'd see people miraculously healed through my prayers. I'd command demons and they would flee. I'd see the dead raised. I'd preach and 3,000 would get saved. I'd always see dramatic answers to my prayers. Is that what Paul means by God's mighty power in our lives? That's not what Paul says. That's not what he means. He says here in Colossians 1.11, strengthened with all power, according to the might of his glory, according to the might of his glory, for all endurance and patience with joy. For the attaining of all endurance And patience. Think about that. You don't need endurance and patience if God is miraculously delivering you in every situation, do you? You only need endurance in trials and and you need patience, in other words, bearing with difficult people, when there are no miraculous deliverances. And that endurance and that patience, it's not, you know, a, a grin and bear it kind of thing. It's not a grudging acceptance. It's not, okay, I'll accept this, but... I'm not happy about this. No, it's endurance and patience with joy, verse 11 says. With joy. What is Paul saying here? He's saying that when we bear up in difficult circumstances, 
or with difficult people, with joy in the Lord because of his great salvation, we are experiencing God's mighty power in our lives. Because I don't know about you, I can't do that without God's power. The last thing I can do is be patient with difficult people without God's power. The last thing I can ever do is to endure with joy difficult circumstances. And I believe that that is a greater display of God's power in our lives than healing us of some terrible disease. When sinful, selfish, self-centered, grumbling, complaining people can experience endurance and patience and joy in some difficult trial, that is a greater display of God's power than some healing or deliverance. And more importantly, we please the Lord when we demonstrate his sufficiency in our weakness and his grace to sustain us in our trials. So we please the Lord when we bear fruit, when we grow to know God better, when we experience his power so that we are steadfast and patient in our trials. And finally, number four, we please the Lord when we joyously or joyfully give thanks to him for his great salvation. I'm going to start with the end of verse 11. With joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of saints in the light. The word joy at the end of verse 11, it can be connected with either endurance and patience, which comes before it, or with giving thanks, which follows it. Some translations connect it with what came before it, some with what comes after. Either way, the point is that when we go through trials, we please God if we don't grumble, but rather are filled with joyful thanksgiving to him. You know, we live in a world of grumblers, don't we? If we are joyously thankful people, we'll stand out as lights in the darkness of this world. That's one of the main ways that we stand out as lights in the darkness of this world. As, As Philippians 2, verses 14 and 15 command us, do all things without grumbling or questioning. Some translations say grumbling or complaining, murmuring or complaining. That you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. You know, we think we stand out as lights in the darkness of this world by the things, um, the things we avoid. You know, I don't go to the movies, I don't smoke, I don't drink, I, I don't do this, I don't do that. Now, I'm not saying we should do those things. And certainly those things are outward expressions of, 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 uh, of an inward sanctification, of, of, uh, of an inward separation unto the Lord. But we really stand out as lights in the darkness, not by those things that, that we avoid, but by really being different. In an area like this, where the whole world around us is grumbling and complaining about everything. We instead joyfully endure and give thanks to God in the midst of our trials. Amen? We need to understand that. How do you develop this 
joyful, thankful attitude in the midst of difficult problems or difficult people? Paul's answer is to set your mind on the fact that the Father has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in the light. Giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Paul is saying that the Father has given us an inheritance that we share with all the saints in the light. We all have Christ in us. Those of us who know the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior, and we enjoy his full salvation. A salvation he goes on to describe in verses 13 and 14. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Now, let me say this, and we'll close with this. I really don't know what the Paul is saying here in verses 12 through 14. I'm giving thanks. For instance, where he begins in verse uh, 9, and so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you. And that connects with verse 12, giving thanks to the Father, meaning I'm giving thanks to the Father. It, it could be that, or whether Paul is saying here, I want you to give thanks. It can be understood either way, but it really doesn't matter. You'll notice that from verses 9 to 12, Paul is constantly saying, you, you, you. I want this for you. I'm praying this for you. When he gets to verse 13, the language turns to us. In fact, in several translations, such as the King James Version and the, and the New American Standard, they even render the you in verse 12, who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. They translate that as who has qualified us, Paul. So Paul begins the, 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 the us and the we, perhaps even as early as verse 12. Paul is getting ready here to, to recount the things which are true about all believers, that we share in the inheritance of the saints, that we have been delivered from the domain of darkness, that we have been transferred into the kingdom of his son, that we have redemption and the forgiveness of sin. And now Paul can't possibly say you in that context. He has to say we. He has to say us. Remember, Paul knew what it was to be lost, and he knew what it was to be found. And Paul can't possibly say, you were lost, and now you're found. He has to say, we were lost. We were found. It's us. And so it leads to us, all of us, Paul and the Colossians, Paul, the Colossians, and all of us giving thanks. Paul gives thanks for God having qualified us for his inheritance. In other words, he says, all the conditions have been met in Christ, which entitles us to a full standing as the children of God. And so we are heirs of God and join heirs with Christ. I mean, that's been done for us. Amen. And he goes on to say, and God has rescued us from the domain of darkness. It's so important for us to remember that in our forgiveness, we're not simply pardoned. God both pardons and he breaks the dominion of sin. Amen? He breaks the dominion of sin. 
We have been taken out from under the domain of the kingdom of darkness. We have been placed in the kingdom of his son. And Paul uses a beautiful phrase here. It's translated in our passage as his beloved son. It literally reads, though, the son of his love. The son of his love. And that's the kingdom we've been placed into. We've been placed into the kingdom of the son of his love. That's where he has put us. And Paul lays all those truths before the Colossians. How in the world could anything else be more appealing, be more glorious than this which Paul is praying for? Now, let me ask you this. Is this how you're praying for one another? Are you praying that your brothers and sisters in Christ here would be filled with that kind of knowledge, that kind of power, and would overflow with this kind of thanksgiving? This is what God desires for us. Amen? We should be praying that. We should be praying that for ourselves. We should be praying that for our, our, our wives, our husbands, our children. And we should be praying that especially for the brethren. Do you desire this kind of knowledge that Paul is speaking about today? And if you don't, something's very wrong. Something needs to be checked. Something needs to be changed. Perhaps you've never come to Christ in repentance and faith for the forgiveness of sins. Well, if not, God is calling you to himself today. And if you are here today and you do not know the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior, you need to know the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior. Our God is a holy God, a holy creator. As our holy creator, he alone has the right to determine how we ought to live. And he has given us a law by which we are all, we all ought to live. And every one of us, every single one of us have broken that law. And we stand condemned before this holy and just and righteous God. Condemned as lawbreakers and sinners. And the wages of that sin, we are told over and over again in the Bible, is death. Physical death, yes, eventually, but spiritual death for all eternity. In a place of punishment and judgment called hell. And our only hope uh, is forgiveness through the Lord Jesus Christ. Who, When he died on that cross... He took our guilt. He died as our substitute. Well, let me put it this way. He died as the substitute for sinners. And he took the guilt of sinners upon himself. And when we come to God through faith in Christ, believing, first of all, that we are sinners condemned in his sight, justly and rightly condemned in his sight, that we cannot save ourselves, that only Christ could save us through his death on the cross. And we come to him in faith and in repentance. That's how we come uh, to know the Lord Jesus Christ as our Savior. That's how we come to experience the forgiveness he died uh, to provide. The Bible calls it being born again. It calls it the new birth, regeneration. There's all sorts of biblical terms for it. But what it means is you have been raised from spiritual death to spiritual life. 
and that life is found in Christ, and you have the promise of uh, eternal life uh, with God in heaven. And again, if you are here today and do not know the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior, we would love to talk to you more about that so you can see us today after service, myself or Pastor Caleb or anyone else who you've seen up here today, and we will do our best to answer any questions that you may have. Now, church, here Paul, in this Thanksgiving, sums up all of what God has done for us in Christ. And he holds it up before us. And he's not finished. He's going to expand upon it in the coming verses. So we've only touched the tip of the iceberg here. And what he's saying is, this is more glorious than anyone could ever offer, than anything that anyone could ever offer to you. Never accept a substitute. Amen? This is what... He wants us to know what, what he has held up before us this morning in this great prayer is more glorious than anything that anyone could ever offer to us. How can you tell if you're growing spiritually? Well, there are many different ways, but here Paul shows that you're growing if you're learning more and more through God's word, how he wants you to live, and you're growing if, as his child, you are seeking to live as he wants you to live in order to please him and glorify him. And may God make that so in our lives. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you for your word to us this morning. Again, we can't be grateful enough for the fact that we have your word in our language, that we can read it and study it and by it uh, be changed, be transformed by your word, be conformed to the image of Christ, uh, by your word come to uh, the increasing knowledge of your will, so that we might walk worthy of you and please you in all our ways. Help us, O Lord, to desire this, And may the prayer that Paul prayed for the Colossians 2,000 years ago, may that prayer this morning be answered in this congregation and in each and every one of our lives. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.